This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's episode. We were speaking to Salem Duckman from Dubai Healthcare City in light of a new initiative that shines a light on the laws in place here in the UAE. If you're struggling with substance abuse or addiction, we are finding out how RTT cured one woman's eating disorder within three hours. Legal expert Scott Hutton answering all of your property questions. We were talking about a new breast cancer treatment that's currently on trial. One UAE doctor telling us what we need to know and who could be a good candidate. And we were finding out about the MENA's first hub of employment connecting people of determination to job opportunities. Talking health in the UAE recently, there was a Dubai Healthcare City recently held an awareness seminar in collaboration with the General Department for Anti-Narcotics, represented the Hamea International Centre of Dubai Police. It's highlighting the dangers of substance abuse and that of electronic device addiction as well. And joining us now from Dubai Healthcare City, Salim Dukman. Um, So thank you for being with us today. I really, really do appreciate your time and and talking about a topic that's not often raised on the airwaves, although I think it is around dinner parties, perhaps more, more and more. This was conducted as part of the DHCC's recently launched rehab and wellness season called Reshape Your Life. Tell us a little bit about this initiative and why you feel like it's the right time. Uh, Thank you, Helen, for for the introduction uh, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, the campaign we ran was Reshape Your Life was basically to talk about these, uh, if you will, taboo subjects and uh, dealing mainly with substance abuse and also the rise of you know, digital addiction, especially for children and even grown-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to bring that awareness to people to see what are their options, where do they go, who do they ask. And I think a lot of this is not discussed. As you mentioned, it's usually you know, around dinner tables. But we wanted to bring this up. As you know, you know, in Dubai Healthcare City, we have a lot of families uh, who have children who, with special needs and generally people who come for different treatments. Mm-hmm. So based on that, we wanted to, to kind of give them an insight and tell them specifically for substance abuse, what does the law say? And, you know, again, we got Dubai police to come in and explain that. We had awareness seminars. We had an event to kind of have the Q&A with everybody uh, in the public to understand what are their options. I think it's really important to think about that because unfortunately you'll have an awful lot of people who don't feel comfortable or confident reaching out for help because they might fear the consequences. And that collaboration with Dubai police is so, so crucial. Are you able to tell us a little bit about what the law says, just to inform people listening today, Salem? Sure. Uh, The main uh, update is uh, law number 81 uh, that deals with uh, substance abuse. And basically, it's indirectly decriminalizing uh, if anyone's going through substance abuse, what are their options? Whether they go to the prosecution uh, building or they go to any Dubai police station to say that I need help or a parent can take their children with their consent, of course, because, again, rule number one about any addiction is you need to make that choice that you want to change and reshape your life. Mm-hmm. So based on that, we always encourage parents that, you know, they take their children willingly or even themselves need help to go willingly and ask for help and they won't be prosecuted. Um, we had a message earlier um, on this topic saying, what about prescription medications? Is addiction to that on the rise as well? Uh, generally, yes, prescription medication is something that is also abused. 
But uh, thankfully, through the government programs where everything is monitored right now and the prescriptions are electronically uh, prescribed, so everything is monitored. But yes, uh, it is being abused. And I think the awareness that is there now with doctor, within the doctor's community as well mm. helps in reducing that. Can I ask a little bit about what resources are available? I know Alcoholics Anonymous is here in the UAE. What about anyone who might be suffering as we're talking about with substance addiction? Are there any resources, groups, um, clinics that we feel will be really valuable to share this afternoon, Salem? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, Himaya is one of them, which uh, falls under Dubai police. And they have a, a vast network of, of clinics and uh, smaller units that support uh, people with addiction. And uh, obviously, they work closely with private and uh, public clinics mm. to get you the help that you need. So once you check in, they have a vast network where they you know, tell you where you should go, depending on the situation. So would that be your first port of call? And I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of someone listening today who might be worried about either themselves or a friend or a family member. Yeah. You could go to them direct or would you, could you go to a family doctor? Could you go to, to yes, the police? Yeah. Because of the confidentiality with your doctor, you could straight go to your doctor and tell them that, you know, I want to reshape my life. Mm-hmm. I would like some help. And they would contact the authorities, meaning not Dubai police, but the right people to get them the help. Uh, and it won't be treated or prosecuted in any way. If you've got any questions on this topic, please do get in touch. Salam Dakhman with us today, Director of Marketing Communication at Dubai Healthcare City. Um, they've just had that rehab and wellness season, uh, reshape your life. We're going to be talking about some electronics next um, and going to the text line as well. Mariam saying, regarding devices, does this start in childhood? And surely there's no getting away from technology. Well, my phone is about an arm's distance away from me, Mariam. You might be absolutely right. But what help is in place? We'll find out next. Salam Dakhman with us today from Dubai Healthcare City. They recently held an awareness seminar in collaboration with the General Department for Anti-Narcotics. And that's represented by who we were just talking about, Hamea International Centre of Dubai Police, highlighting the dangers of substance abuse and really changing the conversation around what we need to know as UAE residents. What are our rights, responsibilities and resources when it comes to substance abuse and also electronic devices, which I think is a conversation we probably wouldn't have been having 10 years ago. Um, it's interesting because we're going to be talking about about eating disorders later in the show today. And I always think how difficult it must be to battle that because food is something that we need in our lives, as are technology to some extent. What were some of your kind of key learnings from that that when it came to what is within our control with device addiction, Salem? I think most of the the data that we looked at, I mean, this is coming from uh, all the doctors, the psychiatrists who work in Dubai Healthcare City. Mm -hmm. And usually you have the red flags. And the red flags is usually like out of 10, if you have five of those red flags, you're addicted. Uh So that means how many minutes can you go without reaching out to your phone? Or as they say, you know, phantom vibration where the phone is is not in your pocket. Yeah. Uh, and it's probably charging in your bedroom and you feel it mm-hmm. somewhere. Buzzing away. Uh, and then if you come to children, you look at, you know, the number of hours they use. Uh, and it varies. It says from one to four hours maximum to some parents just restricted to two hours. And then COVID was a challenge. Mm-hmm. So, again, that kind of gave them more time online. 
And over over the years, uh, we've just taken it for granted, and and people just use all the devices, switching from your mobile device to your TV to your laptop. Screens of different shapes and sizes. Absolutely, um, and the red flags again. Going back to that, is looking at um, how long you stay and how long your kids stay on those devices. When you get them to to stop using, that's how our, do they react? That's our problem in our household. Yeah. Yeah, that's when the tempers start to... I mean, personally, for myself and my kids, what what I've done is, you know, I've just put in a software, and I, I think I would recommend this on a personal level, where you set the times with the breaks, and it just disconnects their devices uh, right before bedtime or right before dinner, mm-hmm. uh, and that makes sense, and it kind of, they know. I think yeah. a lot of it's tooth communication as well. I'm, Absolutely. I'm, my, yeah. my husband and I talk about this quite a lot because he'll be like, I've had enough and he'll take the iPads out of their hand. And I'm like, you farms, you'd go crazy if you were sitting reading a book and someone snatched a book. You need to be giving a bit of a countdown, you know, just yep. managing expectations. Yeah. Um, I just want to come back to what we were t- discussing earlier around substance abuse. Alan. We've had a message yeah. here saying, this is so refreshing to hear. Locking someone up doesn't solve a person's issues. I've attended an NA group here in the UAE previously and got sober with AA. So for me, I'm really grateful that these resources are available here as they are in my home country. And I think, it's, I think it is really, really important because unfortunately, as we alluded to earlier, if someone is struggling with substance abuse, and that can be illegal substances, we touched on prescription medications as well, alcohol on, on this message. If you do fear being prosecuted, if you do fear you know, implications about deportation or impact on your family, you're not going to be able to have that confidence or to even know where to go for help. And I'm I'm so glad this is something that, you know, DHCC is, is taking as seriously as you are. What are your hopes with, with these initiatives? What what are your, I guess, goals with it? I think our, our primary objective is, is to get the awareness out. So all the questions you raised are absolutely the things that we want people to know, that you won't be prosecuted if you work with Hemaya uh, Initiative and Dubai Police, before they do anything is just give you the information. And anonymously, if you want to give a call and find out as well, they will treat it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's through their app or talking to them directly, they'll give you the information you need uh, and, and trying to remove the fear. So before we can remove that is to increase the awareness to know your rights. Once you know your rights, you know, you're more comfortable getting the help you need. Mm-hmm. Um, what some of the... Other activities that you're working on, other initiatives to raise awareness around this topic, but also in the next couple of months. It's a busy time in the UAE calendar. Yes, it is. Uh, Obviously, it's October. It's uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we've been running also a a seasonal campaign on educating, you know, early detection and also support groups. So within Dubai Healthcare City, we have uh, associations, independent associations, which are support groups to survivors, to people who are going through treatment and need that support. Mm-hmm. So we're bringing that to light as well by conducting events uh, and Q&As online with, uh, you know, informative videos on our social media accounts that talk about, you know, early detection, what do you need to look for? Uh, and I think Dubai Healthcare City is best equipped for that. We have the highest concentration of clinics, hospital. So, yes, again, we want people to go out there and not fear, mm-hmm. get the information and get themselves checked. So removing stigma and taboos across a whole range of different issues, both physical and mental health. Definitely. Salam, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really valuable. Um, as a final takeaway, if anyone this afternoon is struggling, suffering, what do you think should be the first port of call when it comes to substance abuse and addiction here in the UAE? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing is uh, get the support of your family. 
uh, and then with your family, the lines, anonymous lines are there, whether it's with Himaya or Dubai police directly. And Dubai police, with their help as well, speak all languages, most languages within the city, and they will guide you uh, without uh, uh, putting you in danger or fearing for any prosecution. If you want details, you can just send me the word help on 4001 completely anonymously and we'd be very happy to connect you with those contacts and organisations. Really do appreciate your time, Salam, this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Um, Salam uh, Lachman, speaking to us from Dubai Healthcare City. We're joined now by Linda Duffy, a former Miss Island pageant queen who battled with eating disorders, now on a mission to help others with a treatment method that's helped her. It's called Rapid Transformational Therapy, RTT, founded by a British therapist called Marissa Peer. It has a celebrity following. And when I think about it, I think about all these big names, but perhaps not some of the individuals that could really, really benefit that we know. Linda says your life doesn't get better by chance. It gets better by change. Um, So lovely to have you here in in Dubai. Um, How are you today, Linda? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, Before we get to how you are today and, and what brings you to Dubai, Would you mind taking us back in time a little bit about when your struggles around eating and disordered eating began? Would that be okay? Mm, Sure. So for me, it it started realistically when I was about 16. But at the time, I didn't realise it was disordered eating. At the time, it was more so when I was probably in my mid-20s. I recognised that it was maybe different to what other people were doing. Um, But even at that stage, I didn't really know that it was an eating disorder. I thought it was just I was controlling my food maybe to just reduce my weight or feel like I needed to be a different size. But it was when I got to a point that um, I was hiding my behaviours from family, um, my boyfriend at the time, secret eating, eating to compulsion where you're eating to a point where you're either sick or are you eating anymore, you will be sick. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I realised, OK, this isn't normal. Now, at this point, as I said, you were you know, taking part in global competitions where you were being judged on your looks. And I wondered mm-hmm. what part you think that perhaps might have played in, in those behaviours and those attitudes at that time. Yeah, so it certainly didn't help. Um, did it make it worse? Probably, yeah, because you are, when you're in a pageant like that, you are effectively judged on mm-hmm. your body and what your face looks like and things like that primarily. Um, but I think looking back now it was recognizing that it actually did start an awful lot younger but I, I just didn't know it but yeah when you're when you're thrown into that kind of environment of pageants or a modeling industry of course it's going to heighten those emotions of I need to look and behave a certain way to be that success or be that person that's always picked. So what was that moment then when you realized I'm not well? Oof it came a good few years later um so I had my disordered eating for 26 years. So it wasn't Gosh. that I'd, and I'd done an awful lot of therapy in between that. Um, some good, some not so good. Um, and primarily, I think it was I was just getting the wrong therapy for, for me personally. Mm. Um, and it just got to the point two years ago, two and a half years ago, where I was, I, I'm, I'm done with me. I just, I cannot do this anymore. Um, particularly in the last kind of two and a half, three years, I'd, got to a point where I was restricting food for up to over two weeks. <clears throat> and when I say restriction, I mean no food, nothing. past my lips except water, oh, green tea and the occasional Americano. Um, and that just, I just got to a point where I, I just can't be me anymore. I, I'm just so unhappy. Mm-hmm. And that's when um, I just happened to fall around RTT. So, oh my goodness. I mean, there's, I mean, a few things that really... 
that's decades mm. of of your brain working in a certain way and your body responding in a, in a certain way. Um, how, I mean, your family must have been so, so worried or were you hiding things to such a pro- professional extent that they never even realised? Yeah, I was, a, I was a professional secret eater. Um, they, my family had no idea. My friends had no idea. My partners didn't know the extent of it. Mm-hmm. They knew I had a bit of a uneasy relationship with food, but I hid it from everybody. Because it's the kind of thing, as soon as you tell somebody, particularly on eating, they will notice, oh, you're eating too much or she's eating too little. Is she binging? Is she restricting? And you're already under so much pressure yourself mm-hmm. that you, you don't need the additional pressure of somebody looking at you. So, Linda, over those 26 years, were there kind of, and I, I really don't like the word normal, but I guess um, were there you know stages and, and, and time periods where your relationship with food was, I guess, typical and then stages where things got more and more disordered. And have Mm. you been able to work out any correlations about what triggered some of the disordered eating? Yeah, so good question. So I found a lot of the time when things were going good in my life, it was pretty balanced. But as soon as I got into a situation where I was triggered by an environment or a person or a situation, that's when no, everything just went a bit chaotic so and like, I fell back into the habit. So it was like a, an unhealthy, unhealthy coping mechanism. For sure. And that's what all eating disorders are. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you do a Google search, like most people do when, when they hit challenges in life, it'll tell you it's a control mechanism. Mm-hmm. But the problem for a lot of people and for me, I didn't know what I was trying to control. Gonna, I had no idea what the source of it actually was. And as you said, you know, some some therapy on and off some different types and different individuals and sometimes mm. it is just about finding that match at the right time with the right person we're going to be talking next about rtt um it was founded by marissa peer who's coming to dubai actually and we're going to hopefully have her in the studio in about a month's time to talk a little bit more about the therapy itself but up next we are going to talk about how it's helped linda um and ultimately her work now as a certified hypnotherapist a rapid transformational practitioner and mind coach she is on a mission to help other people conversation with Linda Duffy. She's a certified hypnotherapist, a rapid transformational practitioner and mind coach. And after decades of battling with her own eating disorders, is on something of a mission to help other people in this area in particular, Linda. Is that something you've ended up gravitating towards with clients or a whole mix? Uh, it's a whole mix. So I would obviously get a lot of clients with eating uh, disorders because it's it's my own background. Um, but I work with people who have anxiety, uh, depression, intrusive thoughts, um, Stress, infertility, lots of All different sorts. things. Yeah. So tell us then about how you first came in contact with RTT and, and ultimately how it became a bit of an unlocking of, mm. of those decades of, of, well, mental and physical health problems. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's gone back about two and a half years ago and I'd got to that really low point where I was like, I just don't want to be me anymore. And again, I'd signed up for another self-development program as you do when you're a little bit lost in life and out of control. And I'd started that process. And again, I was kind of resisting change. And someone said to me, listen, I think you kind of really need to really like focus on your own issues. And they recommended RTT. So I'd done a little bit of due diligence on that. And it, it was, I think it was the fact that it was, it was so different to anything else that I'd ever tried. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. So what is it? Uh, essentially, it's it's magic. <laughs> it, it allows you to access your subconscious mind, which is our memory vault, our, our knowledge bank as such, for us to understand, you know, what's at the source of whatever your negative behavior, whether it's a thought or belief 
or habit or symptom? What's at the source of that? Right? Because it's something that we learn. No one's mm. born with an eating disorder or low self-esteem or things like that. It's something that we learn along the way as a coping mechanism. So where it differs from your typical talk therapy, it, gets, it doesn't treat the symptom, it treats the source. Mm-hmm. And once you understand the source, where that comes from, you can kind of decode your, your mind patterns to change it to more an empowering, healthy mindset so that when you are triggered by people or environments, you can deal with it in a healthy manner. Now, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I think because you have struggled yourself, maybe mm. you could explain a little bit about when you started to unpick this mm. for you. Were you able to identify some of those limiting beliefs or, you know, the thoughts that had started that, that yeah. disordered eating? Yeah, I, I had an idea. Like there was a couple of things from my past that like I knew that it had impacted it. But I didn't realize there was so many other smaller things that were almost reinforcing that belief I had about myself. So for me, it was always kind of like the feeling of not feeling good enough or I had to chase things for happiness. And I'll be happy when I have this or I have this person or I'm doing this. And it was always chase, 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 as opposed to, you know, you're good enough the way you are and you don't have to chase things to be happy. It was Mm -hmm. that internal, you know, self-worth or self-esteem and all those things. And I suppose it was... For me, it was just getting to the point of being able to link them all together that, ah, OK, that's why I have to eat so much or that's why I restrict so much. Because essentially, I just wasn't allowing myself to feel feelings. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel the rejection. I didn't feel the feelings of being let down or that I wasn't lovable enough. I had got to the point that even when I was really happy, I celebrated with a binge. So I just stopped myself from feeling anything. Linda, can I ask then, when it comes to this therapy, is it a case of, you know, you can see a difference with one session or can it be, you know, is it an ongoing process, much like talk therapy might Mm. be, for example? Yeah. So I'll give you my own experience. So my first session on uh, my eating disorder was 12th December. Didn't forget the date. And it stopped in a two and a half hour session. What? And you'd been struggling for more than 25 years. How? I know. I know. It was just... And and if I had heard somebody else say that, I'd probably be like, no, they're, that can't be true. Like, they're just saying that. But I've experienced it. it, it it's it's very hard to verbalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost like someone just flicks a switch in your, your brain and they're like, no, you, you're now somebody that has a normal relationship with food. So what is your relationship like now with food? And do you worry about some of those triggers that we mentioned before, you know, stress, relationships, mm-hmm. kind of tipping you back into old ways? Yeah, I look, it's always... At the back of your head, like, will it, will it come back? The difference is, I guess, what I've learned now in the last two years is I'm still in triggering environments. Sometimes you can't help it, particularly if it's around family and things that you can't really avoid. Mm-hmm. The difference is now I understand maybe what's going on in their life and how they're projecting their trauma onto me, but I don't have to accept it. Okay, or maybe I need to spend less time with them. But also I've learned actually how to self-validate myself and, uh, you know, I guess what people call it self-love. I've learned how to actually like myself and that I don't need other people to like me in the way I think they should like me for, for, for me to feel good. I don't, maybe a better way to say it is I don't have to keep chasing the the, the, show, the, the social acceptance. Mm-hmm. I actually accept who I am for me now. It's got goosebumps. Oh, I think. did you? Yeah, good. Because, <laughs> because I think a huge number of people will identify what you're saying, saying, you know, when we think about some of the most common issues that come up in all sorts of therapy. Mm. I'm not good enough Mm. is enormous. So like, and what's interesting is no matter what I treat somebody for, it can be anything. It'll always come back 95% of the time. It'll come back to I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I'm not deserving. I'm not worthy. 
regardless of what they're dealing with or what has gone on with their life. It always comes back to that. Linda Duffy with us today. I've got a couple of questions coming in on the text line. Um, a message saying, could you help with sugar addiction? That's from Sarah. Interestingly, I, I listened to an interview with Marissa Peer, who was on Diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett. Yes. And he asked that exact question because, you know, he was talking about, like many of us, mm. you know, those sugary snacks becoming the, the go-to grab mm. for, well, energy, stress eating, emotional eating, whatever that might be. How would it work with sugar addiction? You know, if Sarah was to come and sit in, yeah. I don't know, in your it's, chair on your sofa. <laughs> yeah, in my lounge. Here. It's, it's, it's the same thing. Like your sugar addiction is, is, is your need for something. It's moving you away from essentially pain to pleasure. So as soon as you get your sugar addiction, you get that kind of instant like, oh, everything's okay, I can deal with this. Because it's a learned habit. Okay, but you, you reframe it to a way that you understand well, instantly what, what, what happened to you or said to you that you turn towards sugar or food or whatever it is for your coping mechanism. And because you're doing it all the time, it becomes your habit. What was interesting about Stephen Bartlett um, talking um, to Marissa Pierre, the founder of RTT, and he was talking about how he grew up with not much, not much money mm. and that you know sugar and sweets and sometimes shoplifting those became this... Was a treat. The symbol of, yeah, of I'm the same as the other kids. Yeah. You know, I, they're having a Mars bar, I'm having a Mars bar, yeah. I, I'm normal and I'm, I'm worthy of being in this situation. Yeah. And I would have had something similar. I grew up in a house where like you really didn't have sugar. So when I got to the age where I had my little bit of pocket money, straight to it mm-hmm. because I, it was almost restricted from me. Can I ask then, because I've had a number of people asking um how to get in touch with you. So how do you work with people, Linda, and when it, when it comes to, I know you between here and, and, and Ireland, but can you work remotely? Is RTT something that can be done on Zoom, for example? I do all of my work on Zoom. Do you? Okay. I've done my own therapy on Zoom when I was in Saudi Arabia and my, my therapist was in Europe. And the, the beauty of that is it's actually, I find it's more effective because you're in the comfort of your own home, mm. you know, when, and when you're finished your session, because they are tiring, they are draining, they are emotional. You just want to have a shower, have a cup of tea, get into bed and yeah. not have to get in the car and, <laughs> and pass by spinnies and meet somebody that you know and there's, mm-hmm. you know, the big, big the eyes full of tears and you're like, no, just do it at home. It's, it's super effective and um, yeah. And a number of people asking for your details. What's the best, best way of getting in touch with you and would you be okay if someone sends me the word Linda to send your website onto them? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So the best way to get in touch is probably on Instagram, Therapy with Linda or through my website, lindaduffy.ie. Thank you so, so much. Thank Re- you for having me. And I, and I mean that in, in a couple of ways. One, for sharing what's helped you, but also for be speaking so generously about what you'd been through. I think it's so, so encouraging because, you know, I've, I've lost a friend in the last couple of years, Danorexia, and I hadn't appreciated, to be completely honest, I hadn't appreciated how fatal eating disorders are. I hadn't. And yeah. I think we all hoped that things were just going to get better. And she didn't yeah. get the help that she and needed. That's the thing. They're really, um, you've probably given me goosebumps now. Um, they really do consume your life and take over. Mm-hmm. So as Linda Duffy says, you know, it's a... Uh, your life doesn't get better by chance, it gets better by change. So if you want those details, you can send me the word Linda. Don't worry about the spelling. I'll send you the website, send you the Instagram so you can connect and do a bit of, bit of reading and, and reach out as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Will me. you come back to Dubai soon? I would love to come back to Dubai. In the meantime, though, she's on Zoom and then you can crawl into your bed <laughs> after having a chat. in the hot seat today is Scott Hutton, senior partner at EKP Legal. He specialises in construction, real estate matters, and we can help with it all today, Scott. And my goodness, we've had questions from deposits to mortgages, buying, renting, checks, contracts, 
What's keeping you busy? Well, I guess it's not what you want to talk about, Helen, but what's keeping me busy is the Rugby World Cup. Hey, um, hey, which has been brilliant. we're out. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> We've been out for a long time. I know. It's going to take um, it this weekend, though. Yeah. Um, look, really busy at the moment is, is great. You know, there's a lot happening in the market. Um, there's a lot of development happening, which is really encouraging. I've got, had a lot of approaches in the last little while about new developments um, in Dubai and further afield, the Northern Emirates really picking up, mm-hmm. which is really encouraging. Um, Can I ask them when we're talking about buying off plan, for example, what are some of the questions you need to be asking? And that can be to do with expectations, to do with completion dates, all of that. Two pet bugbears for me are completion date and unit size. Mm-hmm. Right? And deal with unit size, first of all, because that should be pretty obvious. The unit's your unit. Is your unit. That's it. But um, often we see units completed and they're a different size to that which you contracted to buy. Um, the law includes for a pro rata reduction in price. And the law says that if the unit is larger, landlord cannot charge more unless your contract says otherwise. Okay. And guess what? Most will. Your contract says otherwise. <laughs> yeah. And I've got one at the moment. We got a case. Um, client bought multiple units, and one of those units is almost double in size. <gasps> you know, so the so price has just doubled. That. Yeah. Um, Crikey, that's that's tough. Yeah. Is and there, the other is, one. Is there a bit of a wiggle room on that? You know, is it percentage? You know, five percent above or below, or is no. it? No. So when it's bigger, there's no de minimis, as we would say in the law. If it's smaller, five percent smaller, forget it. It's too small to worry about. It's what the law says. Mm-hmm. Above 5% reduction in size, pro rata reduction in price. If it's bigger, any, if the contract says um, any increase in size, pro rata increase in price until the unit becomes materially or substantially larger, in which case you should be entitled to cancel the contract and terminate. But your question for you, what is materially <laughs> or substantially larger? Exactly. What, what then about completion dates? So completion dates, yeah, um, another one that bothers me. You buy a unit off plan, it'll have an anticipated completion date, which generally speaking, a developer will be entitled to extend. Then after that extension, you can probably extend it further, but subject to payment of a penalty. So then be paying some sort of interest. Mm -hmm. But often these contracts do not have what we would call long stop date, where there's a final, there's a line in the sand. Past that date, we do not go. And if we do, I can cancel and get a refund. Most contracts don't have it. I would want to see it. Could you be asking for that to be added or is it very much a boilerplate contract? It's generally a boilerplate contract, but there's no reason the developer couldn't give you a side letter, mm-hmm. for example, you know, an amendment to the contract saying, look, whatever the contract says, if I don't finish by this date, you can cancel and get your money back. And to my mind, if a developer's not willing to do that and commit to a date, say, a year beyond their anticipated date. Red flag. Yeah. Scott Hutton with us today. Scott Hutton, the senior partner at EKP Legal, is in the studio, specialises in construction and real estate matters. And my goodness... 
you're a busy man. Okay. So the text line we go, anonymous message saying, what happens when the landlord doesn't cash a rent check and the check then expires? It's an interesting one. Um, not a common one. Not too many people sit on a, a check till it expires. Um, but a check expires after, you know, usual disclaimers apply. No responsibility here, not <laughs> reviewed contracts, etc. But generally speaking, um, as I understand it, a check expires after six months. If not cash, the check is is done. Um, but the rent is still due. A landlord can come back and reclaim that rent, which I would expect them to. Um, so you should be approaching the landlord there, but you don't want to get hit with this. No, better be proactive. Yep. Okay. All right. It is on. It, so, it, is, is the onus on the landlord or the tenant to be driving this forward? Onus on the landlord, I'd say. You know, it's, he's sitting holding it. But from a tenant's perspective, let's like say we don't want to be a year down the line have forgotten about this and yeah, you spent that money somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> right. I certainly would have. Oh yikes! Okay, my message here about deposits. Saying I wanted to Tashiel to ask for my refund from my landlord check deposit, who has not returned my deposit, and requested we paint the house, list of items we need to repair, wear and tear items we left after four years of renting. The fees we had to pay were around two thousand dirhams, and our deposit was three thousand seven hundred. What can we do? The issue will continue if landlords know there is no way for tenants to get the deposit back, since legal fees can cost this much. Please advise. Not an uncommon one, um, and this sounds like a, a tenant that knows what they're talking about, referring to wear and tear. Um, perfectly standard for, in my experience anyway, for a landlord to, to request repainting the premises. Pet bugbear of mine. Um, I've gone through the RDC with it personally because it annoys me. You don't have to repaint the premises. Fair wear and tear is the damage that occurs from the ordinary use of an item. Paint fades. You know, that's, that's it. So you don't have to repaint the premises unless the lease says otherwise. But what I would say in this case, like it's worth pressing this. You know, your costs at the RDC, the Rent Dispute Centre, you can recover them. So if it costs you a couple of thousand dirhams in there, if you get a refund of your deposit, you should get those costs back. Mm. You don't get your legal fees, if that's what they're referring to. And you, they've used the Tissue here service, um, which charges them 2000 They're probably not recoverable. But you don't need legal involvement. You can do it yourself. Thank you for that. So we've actually had a number of messages on on this exact topic, but we're going to go to Francis now before returning. Francis says, there's a particular property that we want. It's being rented out by a brand new real estate agency. Heard about a friend of a friend sending money to an agent stupidly and losing hundreds of thousands of dirhams. What steps should we take to ensure we don't fall into the same trap and ensure this company or broker is legit? Great question. What should you be asking for, whether it is certification, you know, websites, membership, when it comes to only working with those who are registered and legit? Okay. Good question, Francis. Um, we can check online on the registration of an agent so that the company has to be registered, the firm will be registered with the DED, um, and the individual agents have to be registered with the land department. So we can check that. If you have access to the Dubai REST app, you can check them on there. Otherwise, you can check them online, the Dubai Land Department website. Definitely worth doing. And don't send money until we're absolutely certain things are above board. And 
you know, do we need to generally money shouldn't be changing hands here anyway. It should be manager's checks. Mm-hmm. Is there any, I'm thinking about Francis's friend of friend, but, you know, in theory, is there any recourse if you have sent hundreds of thousands to a dodgy agent? Yeah, absolutely. Like The courts are always open for these kind of things. Um, proving it sounds like that is potentially possible, but any smart fraudster um, is probably already gone. Mm-hmm. And they continue doing it because they've done it before and they'll probably do it again. So yep. would you mind just saying those websites and the app again, Scott? Just so. Um, yeah, the app is a Dubai Rest app, um, which is a land department creation. And the website, excuse me, but just Google Dubai Land Department, you'll get it. That's, I'm sure it's not far off that. No. Okay, I'll have a little Google during imagination. Scott Hutton's with us today, senior partner at EKP. Joining us in the hot seat this hour for your free legal clinic is Scott Hutton, senior partner at EKP Legal Right. We're going to try and help out as many people as possible. We've got a message here saying, urgent question. Tenant has been forced by landlord to sign under duress a last minute added condition to the additional notes. Second page of a tenancy agreement. It states the contract expires at the end of the tenancy without renewal. What follows is no communication between landlord and tenant until a month prior to tenancy expiration when tenant requests a meeting to discuss the future. No response from landlord. Tenant files offer and deposit. Again, no response by landlord. Next, landlord requests tenants to leave. No eviction or court court order served. Eventually, after tenancy already expired, landlord requests 70% increase, proving the real reason for the request of vacating. Will the landlord succeed in getting the tenant removed based on that last-minute added clause in the additional notes if he files a case with RERA? Or will the landlord be asked to give the tenant 12 months notice plus eviction notice with a valid reason? Should the tenant file first instant case or wait until the landlord takes action or comes and picks up his cheque for renewal? (sighs) Okay, can I have a little sip of water, Scott Hutton, (laughs) while you take over? Go for it. Um, Interesting one. And relatively topical. We see similar things on a regular basis. Long and short of it is that my lease says one year only non-renewable, which I'm perfectly comfortable with because by law, the lease is automatically renewable. And every lease in Dubai is automatically renewable. So I would say you're in a strong position there. You should be entitled to renew the rent. And if no rent has been increased or notified to you 90 days prior to expiry should be renewed on the same terms. And I would say you're in a strong position to win that case. Um, I don't think the landlord will be able to evict you. And I think you'd end up with the lease being renewed on the same terms. Good luck. Please, please, please keep us posted. Um, We've had a message here, and again, you can be completely anonymous, makes no odds to us whatsoever, saying, our landlord has asked us to leave in one month. We begged him to stay for three months. He made us sign a contract that we are leaving by our will and no compensation will be paid by him. We didn't know he had to pay penalties. Are we eligible to ask for a penalty now? Now, this sounds like something that you've agreed to. Um, so where there's an agreement, you're you're stuck by it and you've got to abide by those terms. Penalties you're referring to, I'm guessing the landlord has asked to leave early, which 
they don't necessarily have a right to. But by agreeing, you've changed the terms of the contract. So I guess the, the moral of this story is when things like this happen and you're not sure, ask a man who does know. Scott Hutton. Um, I really hope you managed to get that resolved. It is, it's, it's about knowing your rights and actually knowing that you're far more protected than you might realise as well. Um, message here saying from a landlord, what can I do if my tenant has left the country halfway through his contract without paying the rent for one month and any early vacating penalties? Ouch, that's a, a difficult one. One, you're, you've got a sitting tenant technically who's not paying. But the flip side to that is rents have increased. Mm-hmm. right? So you get this tenant out and you're in good shape. But to do it formally, I think you'd have to go and evict that tenant. So you go to the RDC, you raise a case for eviction. There's more than 30 days non-payment at rent. So you should be entitled to that eviction. Um, and then once you have that notice, if the tenant's gone, tenant's gone, that's it. You could then... Relet the property, and you can. When you say relet the property, you can relet it at its current value. You're not necessarily tied to what you might have been charging the previous tenant. Correct. Okay. Obviously, do it within the rear guidelines, folks. Just a little saying my bit. Okay. Message for you, Scott, saying we've been in a rental dispute with our landlord, and he's stopped all maintenance of the property since April. We've had to pay roughly five thousand dirhams out of pocket on aircon repairs alone. Is there a mechanism to complain about an absent landlord? Ideally, we'd like to rook up what we spent on, on routine maintenance that's supposed to be covered by our contract. But we'd also like to protect, try and protect our deposit. Any help you can provide would be appreciated. Oh, and we're about to win our final legal battle. Thank you. That's nice. That is nice. Good to hear. Well done. But I would say never count your chickens. Oh, thanks, Scott. Um, yes, yeah, so sorry for putting a damper on that. <laughs> She's also adding to saying, we haven't got a problem paying the, paying the RDC fees, but we've got a landlord that started appealing. We need to hire a lawyer, which made the whole thing not cost effective. Right. Understandable. And it is an issue. You don't recover legal fees, which isn't a, a feature of the legal system here, but it is what it is. You know, that scenario, um, looking to recover maintenance costs, that is something you can do something about. You can make a complaint to the RDC. Do it yourself. Don't involve lawyers. Um, you get that dispute in and you should be entitled to recover that amount. And pretty simple, straightforward case. Hope that helps. Again, please let us know how it goes. Rich has been in touch saying, Hi both, I wondered if Scott can please help. We received notice on our property days after signing a 20% increase in rent and then moved out. We've now found the home advertised on a holiday home rental website. Can the landlord get away with it because there's no Ajari? Interesting. Is that a loophole? Um, the perfectly, to be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure because the law, it has been confirmed that hotel apartments are subject to the terms of leasing laws. So should not be able to get away with this on that basis, to my mind anyway. I think you could raise a complaint there with the RDC for um, unfair eviction, illegal eviction, and you're entitled to your damages Mm -hmm. suffered, so the increase in rent you had to pay. Okay. Hope that helps, Rich. I think we've got time for one last question. Um, M says, my girlfriend and I are looking to buy a property together in Dubai. However, the mortgage and paperwork would all be in her name because we're not married. 
Plus, she has a large deposit and income. I'll be contributing towards the deposit and mortgage payments. Does Scott have any advice on how we can put a contract or legal document in place to cover our financial exposures until we are married and can change the mortgage to a joint mortgage? Obviously hoping we don't need to use it, but we want to make sure we're covered. Thank you in advance. Can I just say kudos? Absolutely. I've done <laughs> exactly the same. I've written that down and say, well done. Getting in front of situations of this, that my job and often the job of a lawyer is to prepare for the worst, right? You know, we're looking at worst case scenario and that's what you're doing here. We don't want to talk about it. Um, it's the same with inheritance. You know, we don't want to talk about deaths, um, but we have to face up to these things. If you put a contract in place between you, that contract should be absolutely enforceable as and when the time comes or if and when the time comes. Hopefully it's never required and it gets ripped up and is superseded by you being married, um, for which best of luck. So w- would there be like a template as such or is it something that you know you would put together you know, in a fairly straightforward fashion? Something like that, to be honest. Is, you know, I say it's easy for me to say something you can do yourself, a one-page agreement, but... I say you can do that yourself as someone that's been practicing as a lawyer for 23 years. Yes. You know, so maybe maybe taking a little bit of advice, like give me a shout, I'd be happy to there discuss that. There you go. Um, I will send you Scott's details. Scott, for anyone that does want your details, um, and we've run out of time, we haven't run out of questions, so it just goes to show how busy you are there. Um, you can be found where, sir? Um, our website is the best bet, uh, www.ekplegal.com. Um, or you'll find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram, but I'm not a frequent user. Are you? I am, yeah. Go One ahead. of these things, I did it to help someone out, and I probably should be doing more <laughs> on it. I don't know. I've, I've, I've just... I, if not you don't, a fan. There's too many. There's, it's not that. It's just a big time suck, to be honest. So if you don't need to, and my goodness, you're busy enough, don't worry That's about it. True. If you want Scott's details, you can just send me the word law and I'd be very happy to send the website so you can connect to him there. We'd love to have you back though soon, if that's okay. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Scott Hutton. Really, really appreciate it. Enjoy the rugby this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) It is, of course, October and we're continuing some much needed conversations around breast cancer awareness. And when you hear that word cancer, you know, it's not just one person that affects it's a whole family it's a community and one of the things so many patients hold on to is hope the hope of treatment the hope of new treatment forever being researched tried and tested and with us now is dr annette consultant breast and general surgeon the clinical lead of breast cancer at mediclinic city hospital um talking about a new treatment that's not here in the uae yet but as i said dr annette sometimes it's about the hope that can be so so motivating and and fortifying for patients. Um, It's called Vision One. Um, Thank you for being with us today. Really do appreciate your time. And I know it's an incredibly busy um, month for you as a a breast cancer surgeon. Tell us about Vision One trial. What what stage is it currently at and what makes it different? So it's actually not not a treatment as such. Uh, iVision is a study that we are participating with. It's a multi-center study initiated in Switzerland in our sister hospital group. And it involves actually something that we routinely do for breast cancer patients. And we are talking about a certain group of breast cancer patients who have more aggressive disease and we treat them with chemotherapy. 
So in the recent years, we have given chemotherapy more and more before we even do the operation. So we give this medical part at the beginning and we see how is the breast cancer mm, handling that. And we see when we pick these patients with more aggressive disease that in 60 to 70 percent, the cancer actually goes away completely or nearly completely. And we tailor make then with the operation, we prove what has happened. And after the operation, we can then decide, does this patient need an escalation, meaning more treatment to make the treatment okay? Or can we stop there and de-escalate the treatment? That means um, less medical stuff. We still would give radiotherapy, mm -hmm. though, because this is part of it. But even in the future, I do see changes coming up there as well. So at the moment, we do chemotherapy, then surgery, then radiotherapy for most of the patients. And we see when we do the operation, we remove the tissue. There's actually no cancer left. So this study looks at doing more imaging before the surgery. How sure are we with an MRI of the breast that the cancer is gone? And then we do uh, a biopsy mm -hmm. with a big needle under anesthesia. It's not painful. And we remove a big area around the previously placed clip where the cancer was sitting. And we look at that. How good is the MRI? How good is the biopsy? Can we in the future avoid an operation for these patients? I mean, surgery is, is not a big part of the treatment and usually is um, tolerated well, but we could save something for the patient. Still, it's an operation. It's general anesthesia. Mm -hmm. It's a change in the breast. So Recovery. nobody really wants that if it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. And this is where we stand. With with drugs trials, I mean, I'm talking in general now, it, it's kind of twofold, isn't it? It's the, it's the decision of the medical professionals to say this person is a good candidate, but it must be must be very conflicting as a patient to say this is something that I want to do. Can you well, talk to us a little bit about the kind of, I guess, the psychology of a trial? Well, the patient will not miss any treatment part, you know. So this is the most important. Everything is as it should be. The surgery is going to happen. You have this treatment. And surprisingly, when you tell this to a patient who has had already, let's say, a few weeks of treatment of chemotherapy, when you tell them, listen, you don't miss anything on your treatment, we just want to make things easier in the future for other patients who have the same what you have, we actually find open ears and patients say, yes, if I could help someone in five or ten years, not next week, we mm -hmm. are not going back to the office and do this on Monday, um, they're actually open for it, even though that they are suffering at the moment, um, they still want to help someone else. It's great to see that. I, it really, really is. I was just saying to your fair that my best friend's taking part in um, a trial in the UK right now and she has stage four breast cancer and that's very much her philosophy. It's like, this probably isn't going to be something for me. I mean, it, it would be amazing if there was some kind of short-term impact, but as you say, it, it, it's, it will take time. It will take time. Yeah. It will take time. Um, look, I mean, you've been in the UA now for what, six, 17, 17 years. years. Um if we could kind of fast forward in your mind to the next 10, 20 years when we look at breast cancer, what are some of your hopes, Dr. Annette, when it comes to things that you are going to have in your toolkit to be helping and saving I mean, women? Looking at this long time, I see a lot of change already. We have much more awareness. I mean, we all do a good job. You talk to your friends. I talk to my friends. We talk to kids in the school. So awareness for breast cancer particularly, because it's my interest, has changed a lot. So women come for screening. Um, women take their moms, take their aunties, and they go somewhere if they find any change. And I hope that this is going to improve more and more, that we see more earlier stage breast cancer, mm -hmm. not the advanced. So 
Um, the treatment comes. The treatment relies on studies, on clinical trials and improvement, and that's that's incredible. I mean, when I remember when I was a younger doctor or student, um, surgery was always the same, and now it's a whole complex scenario what you can do from oncoplastics to reconstructions. We know that keeping the nipple, for instance, is safe when we remove the breast. So many things. Um, it has changed a lot, and I hope that there might be even for some patients no surgery. <laughs> even being a surgeon, I hope that we don't do this anymore. <laughs> we hope we never have to meet you. <laughs> yes, of course. But in the clinic, we do not only have breast cancer patients. We do lots of yeah, screening as well. And that's exactly the point of this whole month, isn't it? You know, it's about people getting into the habit of self-examination at home, of knowing where to go should they find a lump, of knowing some of the methodology that's available to them, whether it is ultrasounds or mammograms, and keeping that conversation going. Because when there is shame and stigma and ignorance, and I don't mean to use ignorance in a negative way, but simply gaps in knowledge, unfortunately, that's cancer loves that. Yeah, and, and if we are ashamed to go somewhere and we think, oh, I've done something wrong in my life, that's why I have that, that's not right. So if you feel that there is a change, you you feel something is not all right, even if you have been to one place and I told you it's okay, but you still think, no, something is weird and off, please go and get checked again. Dr. Annette, thank you so much. I think it's really encouraging to be hearing about some of the amazing work that's been doing you know, here in the UAE internationally um, with, as you say, those views to things being even better in the future. Dr. Ness is consultant breast and general surgeon, the clinical leader of breast cancer there at Medi Clinic City Hospital. Um, we are, of course, continuing our conversations around breast cancer awareness, um, everything from the psychological side we've touched on. Um, and of course, if there's anything that you want to share or any questions, you are more than welcome to reach out. We can connect you on 4001 on the app and the WhatsApp too. inclusion now and um, to be honest when I think about that I think about inclusion in school maybe that's because I've got school age children but what happens after school what about inclusion in the workplace we're joined now by not one not two but three people who are so so passionate about this as a topic starting with Hafsa Kabir CEO and founder of I'm Inclusive it's the MENA region's first inclusive hub for employment connecting people of determination to inclusive employers and opportunities we're going to be speaking to a couple of people that Hafsa works with who've really been impacted by this initiative thank you so much for joining us today would you mind telling us a little bit about why you wanted to create a hub like this what was missing and, and why did you think you were the the best person to start something so special Hafsa. Thank you so much for that question and actually I, I began this journey because I'm a sibling of a person of determination myself so um, my brother identifies as a person with disability he lives with spinal bifida and early on when I was like 19 I was trying to search solutions or a pathway for people of determination online and I couldn't find anything, like I couldn't find a proper roadmap. So Ahmed, my brother and I, we decided to create it. Um, we ended up meeting amazing people of determination and excellent talent that we ended up hiring on our own team. And today we work with over 500 brands who are working to become more disability inclusive as employers. Wow. So it's amazing the movement that this has become, but it wouldn't be possible without our co-creators who are people with disabilities, um, including Taha and Dana, who are joining us on the call today. We're going to be speaking to them very soon indeed. Can I ask you then about that roadmap and, and why it is so, so important for people of determination to be involved, to have, have acceptance in the workplace and have some momentum in their careers as well? 
Absolutely. So one in six of us, as per the World Health Organization, identify as people with disabilities. That's approximately 17% of the world population. So it's really not an us versus them kind of a conversation. If you look at a person with disability having at least one or two loved ones, you can see this impacts 51% of the world population directly, like I'm a sibling. So I need to make life choices according to what benefits Ahmed as well. So do my parents. So brands from a consumer perspective need to include that perspective in. And there is no better way of doing it than to have talent with disabilities inside your team. Plus, a lot of research has shown that talent with disabilities actually have higher retention rates and because of their presence in teams, productivity of teams also increase. So it's it's all win-win situations when you really choose to have a diverse perspective on your talent pipeline. And we help employers with 360 solutions. So we help them to understand what are the gaps. We do the gap analysis. We help them to find the talent as per their brand personalities. And we make sure that the talent is retained into the jobs as well. Hafsa, this sounds amazing. And I'm, I'm really glad you used the word choice there because it is a choice of an employer and of a, of a company to say this is something that's important to us. And we see the benefit of having representation, of having diversity, of having people of determination. Um, what kind of positions or, or industries are you seeing the most interest from? That's a really, really good question, actually. So we work with employers such as Shalhoub Group, Unilever, to name a few, right? And the, the companies have such diverse needs in terms of who they're looking to hire. One thing I can confirm to you, there's, there's probably been only like one to two instances where we didn't have people of determination to fill senior technical roles because they were never hired in those roles in like junior positions. Mm-hmm. But yeah. at this time, we're seeing a lot of customer service representatives, call center agents, uh, people who are really good at accounting. And, you know, the market from a UAE perspective is is still blooming, like it's still reaching a certain journey. But if you look at Saudi, Egypt, the talent have even more advanced skills. So as a region, we have so much talent. There is pretty much no position that can't be filled because we're looking at the skill matching of it. Right. And as soon as the infrastructure is accessible to people of determination, um, they still continue to, the talent still continues to surprise me. And I've never had to look too far to hire in my own team because I have the best talent available, <laughs> the talent for determination. Well, let's speak to Taha now. Taha Shabazz is 20 and has a visual disability. And you're there at I'm Inclusive as a disability inclusion trainer, Taha. Tell us a little bit about how your condition has affected you, whether it's with school, opportunities, confidence, social life. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, sure. I would love to uh, share that. Um, actually, my um, I, I was born with a progressive eye disease, which my parents don't realize until I uh, reached my first grade. And in my first grade, um, I was having some problems uh, seeing the board. And I used to wonder that why my classmates could do the same without any um, issue, but when I used to see that board, everything was blurred. So I used to wonder what to do now. And uh, then my class teacher, she noticed my struggle and she uh, told my parents to consult an eye specialist. So my parents, they took me to an eye specialist who then diagnosed me with a progressive eye disease, which increases my time. And then 
at the age of six, I got my first pair of glasses. And when I wore it for the first time, everything started to look really clear. I used to go out in the parks and I started to see the trees and, and the birds and everyone, everything started to look very good. Oh. Yeah. And many of us take this for granted, but we should ask those with disabilities that what, like how they see the world. So fast forward to my grade ninth, when my eyesight started to deteriorate rapidly and um, I wasn't able to write my own exams. So I had to take a scribe to write my exams and eventually I passed my 10th grade. I wasn't able to complete my education due to lack of accessibility tools at that time in my school. So I had to leave my school and then I joined an Islamic institute for my Islamic studies. This was the time when I first got to know about I'm Inclusive uh, by my school counselor. She contacted me and she gave us the contacts of I'm Inclusive. And she told us that I'm Inclusive is an organization endorsed for the right for people with disabilities. So I connected with them and they provided uh, my sister with uh, a job opportunity and um, I started to work with them as a trainer. Wow. I mean, thank you so much for speaking so honestly about about this. And I'm so pleased that this has all kind of come together. But so much of it comes to awareness. I'm sure there are people listening today who go, I've got no idea that there was an organisation here that could effectively put together people of determination and companies. So if anyone's listening today, if you are a company, if you're a parent, um, please message me with the word include. I'll send you the website. We've also got Dana on the line. Um, Dana, thank you so much for being with us today. You also have a visual disability and, and, and work at I'm Inclusive. How important is a hub like this for you? And I'm, I'm not just talking about professionally, but maybe, you know, socially and, and with the community in mind as well. Yeah, hello, hi. Thank you for having us today. Pleasure. Uh, Actually, um, I'm just going to... My name is Dana Shawati. I'm a master's degree holder in quality management. I'm a bachelor's degree holder in um, human resource management. I have 14 uh, years of experience in working in HR in different departments. Mm -hmm. I'm a mother of a son of two years old, and um, right now I'm working with I'm Inclusive as a trainer. Uh, socially, it's not that easy to be included socially. However, people are around us. They see us that we exist. They see us that we are here. And this is mainly the message that I like always to spread, that yes, we exist, but you don't see us. Uh, I'm visually impaired, and uh, I'm part of the society. So it's very important for everyone to see that uh, we are part of the community. We, We exist. And I think what we're really talking about today is is exactly exactly that. You know, what what does inclusion, what does it mean? And I wanted to to end with you, Hafsa, if that's okay. You know, what would an inclusive future look like to you if you could wave your wand across companies working existing today? You know, you know, even on on a bigger scale, what would you love to see in place when it comes to inclusion in the workplace? Well, to be really honest, I think today is a really good time to answer that question. I feel like everybody doesn't experience perhaps inclusion. When we use the word inclusion, people have so many different paradigms they want to study, right? You have the diversity, the cultural inclusion, religious inclusion. But one thing that I believe everybody can feel, and they have all had an experience with in this world at least, is exclusion. 
So if you have felt exclusion, you can build on that. As an employer, you can build on that. As a recruiter, as a business owner, you can understand what is the kind of experience that you really want this community to have. Do we want all of us to feel safe? Do we want everybody to feel like we have access to opportunity? Do we want to make sure that we promote movements which are about social justice? So disability inclusion is essentially about social justice. And this is why we really say that people of determination are the leaders of our community. We have so much to learn. I learn every single day. Uh, Ahmed lives with a physical disability, and that's one kind of disability that I knew about when I started this journey. So I welcome everybody to join the movement as recruiters, employers, open your doors to the offices and open your hearts and employ people and, you know, let the talent lead you. So well said. So well said. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you shining a light on this and I'm glad we're able to give you a platform here on Dubai Eye. It's inclusive.ae. Um, incredible resources on there. You can register as an employer. You can register as a job seeker. There's all sorts of toolkits and learning solutions, talking about accessibility, learning more about Hafsa and Ahmed as well. Thank you so much, Hafsa. I really, really do appreciate your time today. Um, and if, it, with your permission, if it's okay to share that website with anyone that wants to, to get in touch with me with the word include, would that be okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Linda. you. Um, Hafsa Kadir, CEO and founder of I'm Inclusive. It is inclusive.ae. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.